Hey guys, I'm Jackie Brubaker, host of the Love You Even More podcast. I'm an author, performer, producer, and Emmy Award winner. Each week, I bring on inspiring people and experts in their field to have powerful, motivational, and enlightened conversations about relationships, self-development, and how you can love yourself even more. Follow us for daily updates at Love You Even More podcast and at Jackie Brubaker on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. For more on myself and the podcast, including ways that you can love yourself even more, go to loveyouevenmore.com. Robin is a returning guest. She is a licensed clinical social worker. Wait, was that right? No, it is. Okay, good. Yeah. Let me try it one more time. Sorry. I like blanked. I'm like, no, that, that sounds right. <laughs> that's a, that's a term. <laughs> okay. Here we go. One more time. Welcome Robin Stern to That Girl, the podcast. Robin is a returning guest. She is a licensed clinical social worker. You heard her episode on about um, body dysmorphic disorder and getting really into that and her own journey and how she helps her clients. Today, we are going to talk about, we're going to further our conversation about labels and stigma of mental health. So getting labeled something um, via mental health and what that really does to you as the person being labeled and also the labels we give other people without being a clinician and what that does to them and just really kind of sussing all of it out. So Robin, thank you and welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to be back to speak on something that I personally and professionally am very passionate about. Awesome. Yeah, it's good. So with labels, it's like, I always like to give like a really good definition. When we talk about labels, we're talking about actual like clinically diagnosed labels of you have this mental, you know, health issue or mental illness and a doctor has actually like done the diagnostic and is like, this is what is going on with you um, versus someone on the street yelling out, you're this, you're that, or yourself labeling yourself as, oh, I, I'm so OCD or I'm so like, you know, fill in the blank. So let's talk about actually, because you are a clinician um, and you do help your clients find their diagnosis um, or not also. What, in your experience, have you found when you do all of the work and you've, you know, just diagnosed someone with something, how does that work for you as the clinician? And then how does that work for them when they first get that diagnosis? So for me, in my professional purview, I'm a specialist. So most people are coming to me sort of either because they believe that they have sort of OCD or body dysmorphic disorder, what we call body-focused repetitive behaviors. So most people coming to me are sort of already in that mindset, like I'm struggling with one of these. Um, Unless a family member or spouse is sort of pushing them in this direction, when they sort of hit my virtual door, we're kind of already in the conversation, like we're probably looking in this direction because I am not a general clinician. But when I used to do more general work, it was sort of like, you get a lot of people that sort of can come into therapy and say, like, I just need somebody to talk to. I really have been holding back this, you know, maybe growing up, it wasn't as acceptable to share emotion and feeling. And so sometimes we just start there. And 
as we start to hear the client's story, we start to sort of paint a picture to see like, what are we dealing with? I know for me, even in my specialty, even if they're coming to me to kind of get the confirmation of a diagnosis, whatever it is that I do, um, through clinical assessment and evaluation, I always want to drive home that like, no matter what they, their title or their diagnosis is, is not who they are. They have it. They aren't that. And I feel very strong about that because I think some people um, feel like, you know, they become their diagnosis. They sort of live out what it sort of stands out in the DSM-5. You know, for me, I pride myself in being a pretty skilled clinician that I really use the diagnosis more for the client itself so that they can get reimbursement for insurance. But I always like had felt very passionate that clinicians should really be able to treat the person and not necessarily need that diagnosis. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that when it comes to like psychopharmacology and psychiatry when we're doing medication, because for that, we are looking at what you're presenting, right? So it's going to look different if you're dealing with someone with anxiety versus schizophrenia and the type of medication that they need. When you're going into a clinician's office that's doing psychotherapy, um, you really should, if you're skilled at what you do, you should either be specializing in what you believe this person has, or you should be referring out to somebody. Mm-hmm. I know that having labels for some people can feel very comforting. Like, okay, now this makes sense. This is why I'm dealing with it. And then I think there's, I think there's a continuum. I think then there's a sense of like, this is who I am. This is what I carry with me all the time. This is what sets me apart from other people. I feel different. And then you have people that sort of are pushing the label away. And, you know, as skilled of a clinician as I am, I'm going to be very honest with you with something. All of therapy, all of psychology is subjective. Mm. So it is not, and I just had this conversation with somebody, we're not doing a blood test. So you're, if someone comes to me, it's through the lens of what I see. It's not necessarily, they could go to another clinician and another clinician could take their story and spin it in another way to look at it from a different perspective. So I sort of feel like that's something that I also have a conversation with with clients and letting them know like, look, you're coming to me as this type of specialist. So obviously, when I tend to hear your story, I'm running it through this lens. But I think that realizing like, you know, some clinicians and some people in the mental health field like feel like they're God. And I definitely, regardless of my specialty, I'm not. And I you know, I feel that even diagnoses are flexible and moving. And they're not necessarily something that's stagnant and it's always evolving. And so I think you have to also see who you're talking to and see, okay, are they going to be more vulnerable to that diagnosis? And is it, you know, are they going to internalize that as their core belief? And maybe you need to approach it differently versus somebody who's just like, I need this to know because like, I just, and so I think it's, it's, I've, in my practice, I definitely have had the whole spectrum of that. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, people are very quick to get a label and just that's them now. And I think it's really important that you did say that things are flexible and sometimes people can be diagnosed, you know, something. And then later they find out, you know, through just working with their clinician, like, oh, actually, you know what? I think you're more over here and you're this diagnosis. And because so many things do overlap, it can feel 
it can be flexible. So what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, you know, this is a little bit off. I mean, it's still about mental health issues, but even in today's world as a mom and working, seeing younger kids, kids are overly diagnosed with ADHD and the autism spectrum disorder. And I want to like lose my mind. So I want to be clear. Let's talk about it is that. important. Yeah, it is important to get these diagnoses to get early intervention. I will say though that when you look at somebody at certain developmental ages, certain things can look a certain way that may not look that way forever. Mm. And I know for myself, my child didn't start speaking till 20 months and most kids start talking before 18. And so, you know, but also people don't take into consideration like the pandemic and me as a mom that chose to not allow him to socialize because I didn't want him to get sick. So essentially this kid didn't go out into the world until two and a half. And, you know, I've heard from so many of my own clients who are like, yeah, my child's on the spectrum and I'll ask them because I'm just always curious. And when they share the why, I'm like, I look, I have a DSM-5 right here. And I'm like, that doesn't even meet the criteria. Mm. So I was like, and let's be very clear. That word is stigmatized. Yeah. And getting that diagnosis will make someone feel different. We're not Mm. at a place yet where we're like with addiction or eating disorders, when somebody is told that they're on the spectrum, it's sort of like, you're different, you're odd, you don't belong. And so I sort of, I remember having this conversation because my son got speech and she was telling me about a client who not only had sort of speech delays or repetition of speech, that's not what my son was dealing with. And I look at him as more of a late talker, which is no, you know, now at three, it's like all resolved itself. But she said, well, the child gets super fixated on things and like can't let, and I'm thinking to myself, that's obsessive compulsive disorder, but Mm. somehow you're not looking at it like that. Mm. And somehow because rigidity is part of the diet, they somehow get, and so then it becomes really hard, even though like I, and again, I don't diagnose like autism spectrum or even ADHD, but it sort of becomes hard to pull away those diagnoses. Whereas like with eating disorders, BDD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, like there, I feel like there is more flexibility, but I feel like once you're dealing with sort of like autism or ADHD, it doesn't seem to be, there's much flexibility in that. It's sort of like you get the diagnosis and it's there forever. And it has long lasting impacts on the people. And then you, and then at least in my experience with my clients, like when I asked them what happened, they were like, well, they sort of exhibited this when they were younger, but they grew out of it. And I'm like, hmm, well then is that the diagnosis? Cause I've worked with people on the spectrum and it was pervasive and it was consistent and it didn't change. And so then I start, start wondering like, what is that? And I think the answer to that is because people want services, the only way that they can get the services, at least unless they pay out of pocket, is to have a diagnosis and to have a label. And the the more sort of intense of the label, the more services like you get. And to me, our system has to be better because people shouldn't have to get a label to get services if they're genuinely not. And then on top of it, it's super subjective. And they're looking at people for 30 minutes and making a determination. Even myself, I try to 
over the course of a period of time, start to like look and conceptualize the patient. Mm -hmm. And even in that, I say, look, I'm giving you my opinion. Like this is work that is not like a blood test where you could say, okay, you have high cholesterol, you don't. Like this is not, and I think that that's, people should be aware of that even in terms of the label. It's sort of like a person's opinion. And so take that with a grain of salt when you start to identify strongly as that. I mean, we could all go on WebMD and diagnose ourselves with so many things. Does that mean we really have those things? You know, something that's been um, popping up a lot recently is women who are, you know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s being diagnosed with adult ADHD. What do you think about that? Because I have thoughts but I'd like to hear yours. (laughs) I mean, again, I just, I think it's people wanting to feel like they have a label for something themselves. Like I don't, I don't know why. I mean, because it doesn't necessarily change anything. You know, a lot of stuff with ADHD and accommodations often occur in school, occur in like that type of academic environment. Um, I don't know. I think that, and I also, what scares me to be quite honest is that people know what the questionnaire is. Cause you can go online. Like this isn't mm-hmm. like 20 mm-hmm. years ago where like people didn't have access to the diagnostic tools. Like yeah. somebody could essentially go on and I don't necessarily always sit with clients and do questionnaires. Cause I sort of can, can diagnose necessarily without like sitting and doing an exact questionnaire, but you can go online and look at the diagnostic criteria and the, and the assessments for ADHD. And it's like, there are a lot of people that want to get that diagnosis and it could be because they're med seeking. They want to get on Adderall mm-hmm. and they also just want to feel like, okay, this is the reason why I can't focus or this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know. What, what does that do for you in your thirties or forties? To me, if I was to get some kind of diagnosis like that, that would probably almost sort of be irrelevant especially at that age, because it's not necessarily impacting my day to day. And then I would probably make me feel like, oh no, like look at all the life I lost because I didn't mm-hmm. have the proper diagnosis and I, I could have done better in school or I could have had more support. And it's like, I'm not so sure. I'm not, it, it's very hard for me to believe um, that you can walk through many different environments and never be kind of subjected to thinking something is going on. What I mean by that is even with me, like not getting the proper diagnosis till 22, I still was sort of looked at since the age of nine as having mental health issues with anxiety and depression, which are related to body dysmorphic disorder. So it Mm -hmm. sort of would make me hard to believe that someone in their thirties and forties, like never presented with anything. And then all of a sudden gets a full blown disorder. Mm -hmm. I would question that. And I, again, yeah. having access to all the assessments and tools, there are many people that will go on and know how to answer. And, right. and again, sometimes they want certain medication. There are a lot of people that are med seeking and people with ADHD tend to go on a stimulant and stimulants also help curb appetite and help lose weight. So you have to sort of wonder sometimes what is the push or the motivation to need that diagnosis at that age. Absolutely. And also, I think, like you were saying, how could you just now be presenting? Is it an excuse for, I don't know, all kinds of behaviors of yours? Like, oh, well, I have ADHD now because I'm 40 and um, that's why I can't pay attention or that's why I can't concentrate. Like, maybe you just 
don't like paying attention as much as you could. And like, listen, now I know that sounds awful and somebody can yell at me for that, but honestly, maybe you're just like not giving as much attention to other people as maybe you should. And you could if you wanted to, but you just don't want to, not because you can't. And that's the difference is like, can you really not do it versus are you just not trying to because you're lazy? But guess what? Even with these diagnoses, the the goal isn't to be like, okay, so you have ADHD and that's like your cop out for life. So when you get any diagnosis, it should then mean you want to get treatment to get better. Mm. So someone who has the diagnosis with ADHD shouldn't just be like, oh, that's exactly why. Like I haven't been able to hold a job, hon. Like that's why I don't have any money coming in Mm. and I sit home all day and sit and watch TV. It's like, no, now that you have the diagnosis, now you go out and get the support you need so that you can function. So I think sometimes that's also the part of a label. Like the label should motivate you and give you the drive to get the support you need to function optimally. The label shouldn't be there to be like, here's my like jail out of free card. Like I don't need to step up into the world and function like a normal human being. And so I think that's also, it's again, some people use the label to support and to, to thrive. And some people use the label as a way to sort of like, like say, okay, that's why I can't do this in the world. And I think that you know, I'll be honest. I feel like I don't, I don't know if I needed a label to get better. And so like, I think of myself who has a label and it's like, I knew that I needed to get better. To me, sometimes I see people taking the label and being like, this is my reason why I don't step up into the world. And that to me is probably less effective and is more detrimental to a person's ability to be successful in life. So it's like, unless you're going to use the diagnoses that you get, as motivation to help yourself and function more optimally. If you're going to use it just because that means now, like you don't have to show up in society. I don't see how that's helpful. I agree. And then to add on to that, now you have this label and let's say that you are taking this sort of like, Oh, I'm hindered. I, I'm not, you know, a full person. This is, this thing is wrong with me and it weighs heavy on you, right? It's not become an excuse. It's more just, Oh my gosh, like I am different now, or I am not as full or whole as I used to be with the stigma of other people now, knowing that you have that diagnosis and whatever their stance is, whether they're okay with it, maybe they're not okay with it. Maybe you feel like an outsider. I mean, that just to me would feel like it would weigh even more on me to, to want to get help, but also you know, if you're, if you're feeling like, well, there is no help here. Like I'm just doing the best I can. And now people think I'm strange. Like it sucks. Like part of me thinks, and I think you were kind of saying this too, in a way it's like, part of me wouldn't want to know. I just wouldn't want to know. I I would rather just keep living my life, not with my head in the sand, but more so just like I'm working through whatever, you know, hindrances I have doing the very best that I can. I don't need to have Someone, okay, here's a really good example, actually. All of those blood tests that we have right now to like find out like, you know, I don't know, just random stuff, your fertility, blah, blah, blah. Um, I took one of those and <laughs> it was fine. Nothing bad happened. Um, I'm not very good at poking myself with the little tester thing at all, but I really was on the fence of doing a fertility one because I didn't really want to know because like I'm 41. 
Right. I'm super healthy. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to get pregnant. But I was like, what if it comes back? And it tells me I have this really low percentage of getting pregnant. Now that's in my head. And I'm sorry, your brain rules your body. And it would be like, oh, my brain tells me that like I have low fertility. So my body is absolutely going to be like, yes, we do. You're absolutely right. And we do know from so many people and studies that like, you know, mind over body, like you can make your body, you know, work better. Like if you want to heal, you can heal. But it's, I mean, it's not like everything. I'm not like putting a, a umbrella. No, but I everything. agree with you. But like, if I have that in my brain now that I have low fertility, that's all I'm going to think about is I have low fertility and my body will probably follow suit. Now, I never did that test for that reason alone. I don't even know if I want to have kids. So <laughs> it's like, either way, we're good. But like, that's the thing. It's like, once you know, you can't unknow. And like you said in the beginning, all of this is very flexible and could be yes. one thing, but then turns into something else or not really turns into something else is something else. And we're right. figuring it out more as we go. And then again, you've already left a person there with a diagnosis that they sort of can't unhear, right? So it's yeah. like, um, I, you know, and I, and the thing with the fertility thing, I mean, as someone who has a child and was 38 when I got pregnant, you know, just to get an FYI to people out there, it's like, yeah, I guess it's important to possibly know. But at the end of the day, I remember speaking to doctors and it's like, it takes one egg one time. And it's like, you mm -hmm. can sit there with like three eggs left in you. You can be that person <laughs> that gets pregnant. And then I, cause I know a lot about fertility. I actually did freeze my eggs when I was 33, but I'm going to say this. That's only because I lost an ovary when I was 25. So I was like, I want to ensure that. But I remember like, I've had friends that are like, oh my God, I have so much eggs. And like, for, and I'm like, but you're also like in your mid forties, like 45. And so whether you have so many eggs doesn't mean the quality is mm -hmm. of. So it's like sort of like in, I'll be honest, in fertility things, the only time I feel like it matters. Well, no, I don't even think it matters because I think you should just, if you want to freeze your eggs, this is so off topic, it should be in your mm -hmm. mid thirties. And according to my fertility doctor, you don't freeze them in your late thirties. It's sort of like a He literally told, I, cause I was like, should I freeze more after my son was born just to have like a, he goes totally waste of time. He's mm -hmm. like, if you get pregnant, you get pregnant. He's mm -hmm. like, but no. I was like, okay, so I don't need to test. And I think you're right. Like why test and kind of like psych you out and then mm -hmm. feel bad. And then especially if you don't even know if you want, I just, again, mm -hmm. I believe things happen naturally. And I just remember going to so many different doctors, like it takes one. And I'm like, and that's really true. It's like, you could, you could have the best fertility and still sort of for whatever reason, not get pregnant. Yeah. And it's like, you can be in your early thirties or your late twenties and not get pregnant. And then you could be in your mid forties and have kids. So I feel like, do you need to know that? And I, and you know, I did unfortunately make the mistake you didn't make to look at my numbers. And it's like, it really made me upset. And it's funny. Mm -hmm. Why did I do that when I have a beautiful, healthy three-year-old? I don't really think I want any more kids. Oh, So now I'm like walking around, like knowing this number. And it's like, yeah, for me, it just makes me feel like sort of like, oh, like that's the time of my life. Like I'm losing. And it's like, and once again, it's like your identity as a woman, we're supposed mm -hmm. to be childbearing. It's, it's like, mm -hmm. so I'll agree with you that like less is more. We don't need to know certain things and certain things are not 
necessarily a hundred percent predictors of, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, why then put that in your head? And fortunately that thought process stayed with me for a very short period of time. But for like about a week after I got that, I was sort of like devastated. And I was like sitting there thinking about it. I'm like, but why you don't even want more kids? Like it's like, why? And I was yeah. like, but I just don't like knowing that. And I was like, yeah. it just bothers me. And I was like, so some of these things, again, if it's not going to make you feel good and empowered, the question is, why would you want to get information that's going to kind of hinder you? Right. And I just think in general, I think we're such an evolving society where things are coming up and it's like, we're, we have such old school mentality with like evaluations and, and subjectivity. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, again, the labels are there in my professional opinion to get clients reimbursed for insurance because that's yeah. just how our medical system works. We need a diagnosis to get paid. But short of that, I think I shared with you on our episode, like I was the person that getting the diagnosis hurt me. So I will always come from the the place of if you're going to strive to be the best version of yourself and you don't need that diagnosis, then I don't think it's helpful. Yes. Do a lot of the clients that come to me feel like they need the diagnosis to help them? Yes. For me, that was not my story. So it's important for me to speak on that because for me, getting the label... I stepped out of my life because of it. I was like, oh, I have this. So now I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that shouldn't have been that. It should have been more of a motivator to want to change my thought process or change how I saw myself in the world and stepped up every day. So, you know, I just think we're a, we're a society that overlabels, right? So oh, yeah. it's not even just like, let's be in denial. I want to be clear. I'm not sitting here telling you we should be in denial if you have something. I, I literally think we're in a society where we label everything. And I'm just like, what is that about? Like even, I don't know if you know of like, you know, IEPs in school, right? Remember those? Like people getting individualized education plans? Yeah. Back in the day, I think there was like two or three kids in my whole grade that had them. Today, every single kid has them. So you're mm-hmm. telling me every single kid needs special ed? What it, what, what, what's in the what? No. Mm-hmm. And I just had this conversation yesterday and she's like, well, a lot of people do it because they want to get into better colleges. So they <gasps> want extra testing time and they want to be able to get supportive services because guess what? When you apply to colleges, you don't have to disclose what type of classroom and learning environment you're in and you can just do anything. And and then once you get in, if you want to share with them the accommodations you need, at that point, they can't because of like, it's called FERPA, like the like you can't, they can't, like they can't like tell you, you can't come now. And I'm right. like, that's insane to me. Wow. Like, these are things that are there to help you if you need it. Not wow. because you want to like Use get extra system. test time because you don't need, I mean. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yes, people are definitely finding creative ways to work around things, but that's just so crazy and messed up. But also what does that do to the kid? Like now this kid thinks they're special or something's like maybe possibly wrong with them or they're not capable of doing it. Just, you know, the average standard way, like, again, like what are we putting, especially with, let's go back to kids because kids, I have lots of feelings. Kids are just kids, right? Some kids, yes, there's something happening. And that's why we have people like you and other amazing clinicians who are like helping. But like, I don't know. And listen, maybe I'm just ignorant. I'm just a normal person walking around having thoughts. But 
you know, when I see a little boy who's like super rambunctious, it's like, he's little, let him be rambunctious. It's okay. Like let him be. I mean, maybe it's annoying to you because you're an adult and like, you're not used to it, but like, that's him. Like, let him be him. Instead of popping like a label on him, it's just because he's rambunctious. I mean, I remember going to school. I agree with you. You know, like I went to school with a kid who was a lot. Man, this kid was a lot. But like, I don't think anything was actually wrong. I think he was just a real excitable little kid, you know? Everything else was fine. So it's like, I just... Again, like that stigma that you put on a child so early on, it's immediate something's wrong with me at five or six or something, you know, really young. And like, they don't know better. Like their brains are still formed. Our brains are forming till 25 people. Like we are little kids for a very long time. And if you tell us something, we're going to believe you as children. So I just, you know... I I wish that there, and I think you're so right about this being about insurance and medication and... Well, the other hard part with young kids, and this is very real, is that teachers don't want to do their job. And I say Mm -hmm. that with the utmost respect for education. I've worked in education, worked on the teaching side, I worked as a school therapist. And if teachers can get more hands and bodies in the classroom to assist them, they are loving it. And teachers all of a sudden no longer want to individualize the way they teach to kids. And I want to be clear, we're all different types of learners, but somehow in today's world, there's a lot of people that are like, we're not going to tolerate this. And honestly, I always age myself being 42, but I feel like I grew up and you as well in a time where people worked and were very good at what they did and didn't sort of feel like they needed to refer every single person for a psychological evaluation to figure Mm -hmm. out what was going on because they just sort of knew how to help and teach these kids. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I think it's a combination. I think it's a money thing, but I also think a lot of it from what I see, like it's just teachers not wanting to deal with certain behavioral problems or certain things in the classroom. And they're like, great, if we can get someone in in here, like amazing, like amazing to be able to have that support. And again, I don't, I want to be very clear. There are people that definitely need it, but I also think that there are people that don't. And then I also Mm -hmm. think, especially in COVID three years, like we don't have the studies yet to show how this impacted. So you're yeah. going to tell me that me growing up in an era where my I was taken out all day, every day, till, from a baby till two and a half is going to look different than my kid who never left the house. Not to mention, I had a doctor say, no, it should have no impact on your kid. I'm like, my kid doesn't know the world. Mm-hmm. Like you're telling me it has no impact. Like you need to like... But we will see those studies mm-hmm. and then people are going to step back and be like, oh God. But that's also the problem with diagnosis is that a lot of these assessments and evaluation tools are archaic mm-hmm. and are not within today's time. So you're, you're, and all, and it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's diagnoses are good for people that really need it. Mm-hmm. They're really also good for people in low so- socioeconomic status who don't have the financial means to be able to do things privately and to be able to support their kids or people in a way where they can. But truth be told, I come from a position, even as a mental health clinician, where I think you should be diagnosed when it is necessary. Mm -hmm. Not 
just because. Yeah. And I, I really agree. think in today's world, unfortunately, it seems like everybody has something. Do I think that's the case? Doubtfully. Do you, I, don't I don't think, think so. people, I don't think so. And so how does, I don't know. It's just, you know, and then what? That's sort of, like I said, like gets your jail out of free card. You make mistakes in life. You do things. Oh, I have this. It's like, if you didn't know you had it, maybe you would hold yourself accountable higher because you would just try harder. So I, I don't know. I'm not so sure that the way of the world is great right now. But with that being said, I think unfortunately it also goes back to our medical system and our system in general. We don't provide service to people just to give some support. We only provide when there's significant delay or a problem. And that's essentially why a diagnosis seems to be needed to do all of that. Right. Okay. Last question. When people are, (laughs) this will be fun for us. When people are like, my ex is a narcissist, my friend is a narcissist. We all know this word is being thrown around a lot, but I would also like to argue that there are more narcissists now than maybe there were. And also caveat, not everyone is a full-blown narcissist, right? Like actual diagnosed narcissist, close to sociopath, okay? There's very few people who are like clinically that. Um, A lot of people just have very strong narcissistic traits. Um, Agreed. What do you, yeah, go for it. I mean, I know what you're going to so say, but it's say it. funny. I mean, I definitely have dipped my toe into trying to understand that throughout certain relationships that I've had to want to go back. And I want to go back and say, I think sometimes maybe women, I don't know if men, because I guess I've gone on the Quora forums to look, maybe <laughs> men too, but a lot of females, we want to kind of know what did we deal with in our last relationship? And it feels nice to kind of put like a little label and be like, are Oh, this is why. Like, mm-hmm. but to be honest, as I've processed through even my own demise of my engagement or whatever it was, like I start to see my hand in the mix too. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, wouldn't it be lovely to sort of label this person and say, okay, this is the reason everything fell apart? Okay, like I guess, but then you start to put yourself with the, the other thing I'm starting to realize is I have books are narcs. Actually, I put them downstairs because I was like, I don't want to look at this. <laughs> I think the books that are written by specialists have more weight than going on some of these forums where people are like, this person definitely is a narcissist. And it's mm-hmm. like, what is your expertise to be able to say that? Like, mm-hmm. you're a life coach who says <laughs> that this person's a narcissist. Like, again, I think we could all look at people and say they may have certain narcissistic traits and one would say, but why more now? And I think, again, when you deal with social media and you deal with self-promotion and you're dealing with people constantly like, like loving you or promoting you, you sort of get this like ego, like tistical, like sort of like vibe going on. And then you throw in living in LA over there and like <laughs> just the land of like fake and Hollywood and glitz and glam. But do these people have a full-blown disorder? Probably unlikely. Like probably there's less, but yet guess what? Everybody's going around and, and you could go on Instagram, you could go on TikTok and, and you could go on bar stuff and you see all these people and you're just like, not everyone is that. And I, and I'm going to be honest, like I definitely fell in that trap myself of like wanting to be, and it like, and I sort of like, that's how initially I processed my break. 
But then as time went on and even reconnecting and starting to talk a little bit, not that we're together, with my ex, I sort of started to see certain, certain qualities. I don't even want to say traits mm. that I understood about him that were him. And then I sort of saw my own stuff and just felt like, okay, that this probably just wasn't the right match because yeah. like you're just more inv- self-involved, which doesn't necessarily make you a narcissist. Yeah. Like, you know, and and one also has to realize, like, at least for me, like, a lot of anger and back and forth may not just be because a person's a narcissist. A person can be like, I really love you, but we're not making this work and it's driving me nuts. So when some people just don't have the strength to be like, go. Like, yeah. I've had people in my life where they've been like, this isn't working. All right, we got to go. And there's a lot of people that hold on and it tends to turn toxic because they're just like, I don't know how to say like, I love you, but this isn't going to work. It's sort of really hard. And I think for me, you know, when I look at the last three years processing my breakup, I, I definitely love to like initially have that. And it felt like super empowering and all those freaking Mm -hmm. like forums. Like I was like, Oh yes. Like, yes. Like this is great. And like, I, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense necessarily I initially healed but it didn't but didn't necessarily help me and honestly what helped me more is to realize like what what I needed in a relationship what I wanted and what works and doesn't and I again I think that most people in this world are selfish beings and I don't know what the statistics are of people being truly sociopathic and truly narcissistic but I'm definitely going to say that people who you know with social media and these platforms they're just, they're breeding grounds and I'm not going to name names, but there's, you know, different reality stars that like to throw out that their significant others were narcissistic, yet they sort of present similar qualities. So I'm just like, do you realize what you're trying? Like you're sort of, you know, I think it's more important to realize if something's healthy or not. Right. So I think I think it's just human nature. Like when we come out of relationships that we want to put sort of this label because it makes us feel safe. Like, okay, that's why it ended. Mm -hmm. Like it's very hard for each person to take like their part as to what went down. Or even like I said, especially when there's love there to be like, love isn't always enough. And I think that's hard for people to sometimes grasp because it's Mm -hmm. just like, love each other you're attracted to each other, you come from same values, like make it work. And it's like, yeah. it doesn't always work like that. And so wouldn't it be easier to label this person as narcissistic, incapable of loving, than just started realizing like, why isn't that person allowed to live their life to their value and what you want? They just might not want the same life you do. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, I think when a relationship is unhealthy and toxic, then you have to get out of it and you have to understand why. And relationships can be toxic with two very mentally healthy people. We don't always have to label, but I'm going to go back to, it's a society that sells books. It's a society that sells therapy and coaching and these whole freaking things. And and there's people that are constantly talking about it. And it's just like, it's a business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, and it's the new buzzword in the last like five years. Everyone's right. a narcissist. My ex is a narcissist. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I, it doesn't, I, to me, it didn't help heal me. It just sort of made me feel like I was throwing a label. And then honestly, I started to feel like, then what's wrong with me that I allowed that? 
Which, oh, so yeah. It sort of was not an empowering position for me either. So I don't know how anyone feels. I don't know. It's to me, the, it's just, it's not very conducive. So, you know, I would strongly suggest if you just feel that something is not right and you're in relationships that that's not healthy, then that's sort of what it's not necessary for you to clinically diagnose someone, nor should you. And even me as a clinician, I can't really diagnose somebody unless they're in my presence. Mm -hmm. So like, and they're coming to me for therapy. So, you know, people just off the cuff, like you're a narcissist. And again, like, I just think it's hysterical. And these are the same people that sort of are exhibiting similar traits. And I'm like, maybe you should like take a look, like step back for a second. Like be careful what you're saying because it doesn't really, it doesn't really equate with how you're presenting yourself either into the world. Oh, such a good episode. Robin, thank you so much for all of your amazing insights. There was some gold in this episode, as always. Tell people how they can find you. Yeah. So you can find me on my website at rlsterntherapy.com or on Instagram at therapist, And you could shoot me an email or a DM and I'm always open to answering questions and having any dialogue. So I want to thank you again so much for having me on. I think this was a great conversation, especially as a clinician that treats people. Um, But the most important thing is I never want someone to feel like they are just a label. That is not how anybody should walk into this world. They should be identifying themselves in multifaceted ways. And um, I'm going to leave you with one last comment that I had a a late friend of mine who passed away from pancreatic cancer. And I remember talking to him and I kind of felt guilty like sharing like a personal story to him because I felt like it was drama and sort of was meaningless compared to what he was dealing with. And he was like, Robin... I am not just somebody that has cancer. I am somebody that's your friend. And I think that to me like spoke volumes because it's like, you sort of feel like even regardless of whether it's a physical or mental health issue, like that is us. And nobody wants to feel that that's all they are in this world. Oh, amazing, amazing way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Remember, sharing is caring. Make sure to rate the podcast and leave a review. We really rely on this to help get the podcast out there.